0: No, my hi am I. My name is Jeremy, and this is the Maximus 2 podcast. A well known rule about elections was effectively summed up by Bill Clinton's first presidential campaign strategist, James Carville. He expressed it as a truism it's the economy, stupid. While Prime Minister Ardern has confirmed that she thinks this is a COVID election, in reality, it's an election about how the pandemic has affected and will continue to affect the lives and livelihoods of every New Zealander. As billions of dollars have been spent, and billions of dollars are promised by each party, it's important to remember that how a government chooses to spend is just as important as how much that government spends and borrows. On this month's podcast, I'm joined by Maxim Institute senior researcher Julian Wood. Julian is an economist and we've recently released his newest research on active labour market policies, which look at ways that the government can spend money to try and create or save jobs for people. Our conversation covers Julian's thoughts on how effective he thinks this government's response has been, what the next government should focus on to try to stem unemployment, and more broadly, where he thinks the economy is going, and how long will take to recover. To see more of Julian's work on employment policy, immigration, and regional development spending, head to our website, maxim.org.nz, and click on Julian's photo on our homepage. For now, enjoy the conversation. So Julian, we're coming out of level three for the second time for Auckland. Um, how do you think that we're doing this time?
1: This lockdown certainly was different to the, the previous ones that we've had. Um, once again, we saw Auckland taking a massive hit. Um, so credit card spending uh, during lockdown was down 43%, which is you know, very large. The rest of the country, it was only down 11%. So there, there was a, a definite difference between Auckland and the rest of the country. I mean, Auckland is a driver of growth across the country. But uh, we did we didn't see that sort of sustained hit to the economy all over the country in the same way, so that was it was an interesting experience and I would say um, probably people outside of Auckland had less of a sense of solidarity uh, with Auckland through that process, but that's just my social commentary, not economic commentary
0: <laughs> absolutely I, I guess looking bro- more broadly at 2020 and kind of um, where where you might have thought that we were um, coming out of um, coming out of our first COVID lockdown and and what we were predicting uh, while we were in the midst of it um, back in sort of April, May. How do you think we're doing um, economically? Uh, and and what do you think is coming up for us as a country over the next few months?
1: Yeah, I, there's definitely a whole lot of uncertainty. Um, I think the general consensus is that the economy is performing better than economists uh, thought at the outset of, of the pandemic. So, the New Zealand economy is holding up uh, better than many people thought. We've also seen the government spending um, an absolute uh, boatload of money, right? So we've had this massive uh, cash injection through through the COVID response. So at, at the very start of this, nobody really perceived how the government would would play its part. And so a lot of those early forecasts were saying, you know, well, even with $20 billion, this is where we're likely to hit. And, and we've seen the government put, you know, $50, $60 billion in, um, you know, not even counting the money that's going into sort of the quantitative easing. So in some respects, they, the unknown factors there was, was how the government was going to come to the party in some respects. So um, alongside that, though, I would also say if you look at the forecasts for... Uh, um, other countries, I would say most other countries are doing worse than New Zealand's economists were predicting or or even international forecasts were predicting. So there's been this sort of uh, two competing factors. One, where New Zealand's doing a little bit better than we thought, but probably overseas is doing worse than we, than, than we thought. So, yeah, the wash up is it's, it's just really hard to say.
0: And when we say overseas, you know, I mean, some countries are doing better than others, right?
1: absolutely it's it's this is one of these things we can't say this is the impact of 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 covid on on the you know well the world is just an aggregation of different countries and every country's response has been different and the way the the pandemic has hit each country is different uh new New zealand's a long way away from anywhere so we've got the opportunity to close our borders in a way that you know a small country inside asia might not so there's um yeah it's it's very uh, I want to use the word heterogeneous here. Every country is experiencing this this pandemic in different ways. and so um, their economies are structured in different ways. so if you if you are a seller of cars, for example, if you are a, a, you know an exporter that focuses on high-end manufactured products, you've probably taken a really substantial hit. Uh, New Zealand's not importing as many cars as it used to. At the same time, um, if you're like New Zealand and you sell milk powder, or other food products. Often people still buy food products. They're they're less prone to shifting with with, um, price shocks. Yeah, so basically people still gotta eat, but people don't have to buy cars.
0: I've I've heard you before um, use the analogy that you've stolen from someone else about New Zealand basically kind of being a a cork or a ship on um, on sort of the ocean of the rest of the world's economy um, that sort of we we just have to kind of react and 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 sit on what else is going on I mean what are the major cu- countries that you know we need to look at um, in terms of how their economies are going to determine how sort of the next wave is going to go for us
1: Yeah I mean a big I mean, obviously Australia, because um, Australia takes sort of nearly sixteen percent of our exports. So it's a key, a key place for New Zealand. And you know, their figures actually came out uh, yesterday, and and their GDP for the June quarter was minus seven percent, which was larger than people were predicting. So we can see the ongoing effect of the pandemic in, in Victoria and other places just really starting to slow down that Australian economy, that will flow through to um, to a whole lot of demand for our products in some respects. Same with, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, when you look across the board, actually, I just looked at the OECD numbers and a lot of, almost all of these countries are in negative territory now and quite substantially so. I think the largest one. The numbers just came out for India, and it was down nearly 25%. I think it was 24%, which is just a massive shift in one quarter. Um, So, uh, you know, Germany's down, France is down, the UK is down, the US is down. Um, You know, US takes about 9.6% of our of our imports. They're down. You know, minus 9.5%. So, what we are seeing is sort of this sustained negative shock almost across the board with countries that buy New Zealand products and so we, well, or you know, forecasters are saying that this will just feed into lower or weaker demand for our products as we continue on through this. Um, one bright spot at the moment is China. We've seen China rebound quite substantially. Um, yeah, whether or not we can fully trust GDP figures out of China, that's that's also up for debate, but they, they're certainly not in the same negative territory, so that's the one sort of bright spot at the moment, and when you look at some of the high frequency data there, and what I mean there is just sort of data that you get from um, a whole range of different sources, they're not official statistics, but it might be credit card spending, it might be um, manufacturing indes- indexes, there's there's some heat coming back into that market so you know china does take they take nearly a quarter all of, of of all of our um exports and so they're a huge, substantial market for us. And if they, if demand picks up there, that's certainly going to help.
0: Looking down into New Zealand now. I mean, I remember early on you were talking about um, the different kind of growth paths that New Zealand might take. So you know, we're looking at sort of a if we're looking at New Zealand's growth over the last few years, sort of as a as a line that's kind of steadily in, inclining up. Um, that we were looking at a big dip what sort of shape that dip took whether it was going to be a u shape or a v shape sort of sharp drop and then sharp recovery or even i thought you there were lots of different letters of the alphabet you were talking about but i mean you know looking on we're we're three months on from that that conversation um that we were having what do you what do you think it's going to be now
1: yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, you're right. There's a, a V-shaped shock where you see a shock and a rebound quickly and a U, which has more of a bottoming out at the bottom. Um, within, a, within a month, some of the um, international commentators were talking about a Nike swoosh-shaped recovery where you saw a dip and then more of a swoosh back. I think it's still really early to say. I mean, we're talking, a lot of what we're basing this sort of recovery patterns on are very high-frequency data. So um, one could almost argue... Probably after six months we'll have a better, you know, better look at this, or even a year, we'll have a, be able to look back and say this was the, the full shape of the recovery. I think what you are picking up now, though, is a number of people saying that this is a K-shaped recovery, or what I've also heard is sort of a sideways Y. Um, and that's that you, you see winners and losers emerging. And I think you do see this across the sectors in New Zealand, that for some firms, you know, COVID's the best thing that's ever happened to them. Um, you know they're they're having to manufacture more masks they're having to manufacture more health products Um, you're also seeing people who have um, got houses for example we're seeing house price inflation starting to rise again we're seeing people who already own assets um, becoming wealthier in that sense and what we're seeing other people who are in industries that have been affected like uh, your tourism industry and some of your accommodation industry we're seeing a real a real inflection point here and we're seeing we're seeing the other side of the K, the K, the leg that that shoots down. And so we are seeing the separation between winners and losers at the moment. So on balance, I still don't have a clear picture of what this shape recovery actually is. But we are definitely noting that there's people that are winning and people that are losing.
0: And it sounds like the people who are winning are the people who were already kind of winning before things went south, right?
1: Oh, yes and no. I mean, if you were a a person who owned a large um, hotel, for example, you might be feeling that, that that's not a fair statement. Um, so there, there, there are business people now who are working harder than they've ever worked, producing more product than they've ever produced. There are other businesses that are really struggling, and, and workers in those firms struggling as a result. Um, I do think the that the, the kind of interesting point right now is actually as yields on government bonds have just fallen through the floor, where are people putting their money and what, what it appears to be is that people are putting their money into stocks and bonds, I mean stocks, and also into housing. And so the people who um, have enough capital or enough money to start investing in stocks or to buying, you know, having properties, multiple properties, you are seeing them becoming winners at the moment, that that it doesn't guarantee success in the future. Um, asset prices as they start to inflate um, often reach a point at which that bubble bursts and um, History has shown that a lot of that wealth can be wiped out quite quickly if if we're not careful. So, yeah, there, there's winners and losers, but some of those winners and losers might be illusionary at the moment, I'm not sure. Um, certainly if you have money and you've been investing in the stock market, you've been a winner recently, um, and same with house prices.
0: I mean, is that good news for things like KiwiSaver and the superannuation fund?
1: Yeah, as these prices rise, you start to see returns rise as well. So. Um, Yeah, but once again, and um, a lot, the way I view about investing is that it should be for the long term. And often, when you're seeing short term, quick rises in in asset prices, you start to question whether there's, you know, the fundamentals underlying that are correct or not. And you would have to start to question whether or not the current, um, the current way the world is just pumping money into the system is leading to an asset asset price rises which are unsustainable in the future.
0: Yeah, I guess moving from something slightly less speculative, I mean, you know, the, you move from something that's theoretical like uh, where, where the stock market's at and 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 the sort of theoretical value of things right down to something uh, as simple as whether or not someone has a job. And, um, you know, we saw the, the uh, unemployment figures come out that showed, you know, unemployment had technically moved down from 4.2% to 4%. Um, uh, and there's obviously been a lot of conversation about that. Um, and most people listening to this probably would have uh, heard some of the commentary. But just really quickly, Julian, could you give us your interpretation of that and where you think what what you think those uh, broader figures are, are saying about what people are experiencing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the the big problem that you've got there is you've got a a quarterly value of unemployment where you've got a couple of, um, you know, a quarter is made up of three months, and you've got a couple of months of good data and. and one month of data that's starting to capture COVID. So you've got high frequency data problems. Things bounce around quite quickly the finer you look at things. So underlying those uh, those sort of unemployment numbers is, is a whole lot of other information. So what I would say is if you really wanna pick out what's happening in the labor market in this particular instance, in this particular time, um, because that unemployment rate is such a broad figure, I would, I would jump to looking at um, better or higher frequency data which is, I would go to your MSD information. So what's going on with actual benefit numbers across the country?
0: Where are people actually going if they don't have enough work to sustain their lives? Which is really kind of what we're looking at when we're wanting to know about the unemployment rate.
1: Has, has the unemployment rate moved up or down? Well, why don't we look at actual, just the numbers of people who are, who are registering for either the you know, the COVID income relief payment or the job Seeker support benefit? Because that's where you're gonna capture people who, are, who were working who are no longer working. And what, what we've seen there is we've seen, um, you know, numbers, there's about 24,800 people on the COVID income relief payment right now. So those are people who have directly lost their job as a result of COVID, um, have been made redundant and have gone on to that payment. You've also seen the job seeker support numbers, um, you know, jump up substantially. So now if, if you add the the COVID income relief payment and the job seeker support together, you've got about 220,000 people um who are out of work in New Zealand. And, that, and so that's gone up substantially about, oh, I'd have to go and look at it to, to, to add it up, but I think I think you're looking at about 70,000 more people signed up for, for these benefits. Yeah, and, th- and that's a substantial rise. So we are definitely seeing uh, the impact of COVID on employment, um, it's, just, it's not yet filtering into the unemployment rate itself. Um, another way of cutting this is to look at, at incomes, And so what we saw for the first time in New Zealand, I think, since the data has been collected, is we saw a a drop in the median weekly income. It dropped 7.6%. So when you look at, you know, median weekly income, that's never happened before, but we are seeing this drop. Underlying that is is sort of more interesting, though. If you look at people who were self-employed, you've seen uh, their median weekly income drop by 12.5%. So you're seeing self-employed taking a far bigger hit in some respects than than wage and salary earners. We actually, when you look at wage and salary earners, their median income has risen. And that, once again, you need to unpick that because what's behind that rise is actually that at the low end of the distribution, people who were not earning much as a wage and salary earner, they've actually gone to zero hours, so they're earning nothing which artificially means that median has increased.
0: So they're no longer being counted in the overall statistics, which means that now the median is bouncing back up towards the people who have more secure and therefore are more likely to be paid more in general.
1: Which feeds back into that initial story when you see the winners and losers. You're seeing some people are, are, are doing better or even maintaining where they are, but there's this other group. Um, and you know the income data um, pushes us towards saying if you're self-employed, Going into this, it's it's a pretty rough time for you right now, um, and and there are just lots of people that are losing their job and having to go onto a job seeker support benefit or this COVID income relief payment. So, the um, the COVID income relief payment, you won't find any issues there around gender because it doesn't matter what your spouse is earning. Well, as long as your your spouse is not earning more than a hundred thousand and two thousand dollars a year, you can still get access to that that payment. So, that should give you a pretty good a pretty good idea that this is a, you know, a a, broad-based, across-the-board thing going on.
0: And what, I mean, because I know that you, we've had a conversation about that before, just around how different the COVID income relief payment that's just been introduced um, for people who've been made redundant, how different that is to, like, a normal welfare and kind of the dangers around people who haven't ever had to go on welfare before uh, coming on to kind of relying on the state and the impression that they get uh from from that
1: yeah it's a really interesting payment it's you know ordinarily before before COVID happened if you lost your job you would just go on the job seeker support benefit that was you know it's not a high amount of i mean generally speaking you don't see anyone coming into the press and saying i'm really glad i got made unemployed because you know the unemployment benefit is just wonderful to live on it's it's excellent you don't hear that narrative what you do hear is man it's really hard to live on the amount of money that you get on on the job seeker Support Benefit, right? It's, it's intentionally held at a level which means you want to go and get a job as fast as possible. Um, the, the COVID income relief payment was a higher level of payment and it, it didn't really matter, in my opinion, it doesn't really matter how much your spouse earns as long as it's less than 102000 a year. Um, and so it's quite a different form. It's really created this two-tier system where people who, lost their their job, I think it's after the 1st of March, go into this COVID income relief payment. It's quite a different benefit system to what you would have had before this. And so what we're seeing in some respects is people moving on to this. Admittedly, it only lasts for for 12 weeks. Um, After 12 weeks, you end up back on the JobSeeker Support uh, benefit. But if you were to find another job in that period, you'd be saying, well, the benefit system seems to work quite well. You know, I got a substantial amount of money, It wasn't really means tested uh, and I've now got another job, so it's helped me transition well. And that was what it was designed for, was to help you transition well. The downside to that is that it starts to undermine the ability of people to realise how other people are having to experience life. And so part of that experiencing life, a a whole lot of people who were made redundant before the first of March is actually quite a tough existence. So, you know, we have to balance the, the benefit that this is helping, you know, is helping people find work potentially, provides a buffer if you've got a mortgage, mortgage payments and things like that, against this this need to actually experience and, and understand how that benefit system is working. Certainly if you feel like um, the benefit system is working well, there's no pressure on you to, to make you know those payments higher. Um, and so it sort of it undermines a little bit of solidarity that you can have with people and understanding how other people are struggling in the current labour market
0: so we've talked a little bit about the covid income relief payment but obviously um you know there's, there's a certain number of people who have um who have been receiving that but but far greater is the number of people who've been receiving the wage subsidy um, and businesses using the wage subsidy from the government to um, to offset the effects of of lockdown um, and allow them to keep people employed. We recently released your most recent report, Julian, called "Back to Work," where you advocated for the government to stop using wage subsidies, which they had said that they would. Um, but you sort of said it's time to move from wage subsidies, which sort of keep people locked in. Um, to the jobs that they had before, which may no longer actually be viable. Um, And it's time for the government to, if they're going to be spending on trying to, um, you know, keep people employed and and get people working again, uh, time to move to hiring subsidies. Just after we released that report, literally three days later, Labour announced that they had a policy for hiring subsidies. Uh, And then I think a week and a half later, we went into another lockdown for Auckland and Labour announced that they were bringing back Wage subsidies for a limited amount of time. So, you talk about kind of since you've released your paper, uh, you know how you feel about those developments. Was it helpful to go back into a wage subsidy situation, and what do you think about the Labor's um, hiring subsidies that they have put forward?
1: This all speaks to the uncertainty, sort of around the path of the pandemic and its its impacts. So, what I I think we will see is this this bouncing with infection and resurgence and things like that. Now. I think when when I looked at the literature wage subsidies were useful at the start of an economic shock and uh, you know they do really buffer people from that shock they they do exactly what the government was trying to do they can they can assist uh, firms to to keep paying wages and they they can keep people attached to firms so it 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 does seem to work in the literature the downside to them is they're just really really expensive right broad based wage subsidies have cost a whole lot of money so we've seen nearly 15 billion dollars yeah we everyone got really upset about 3 billion dollar provincial growth fund you know this is five times larger this is some massive amount of money and they've managed to spend it all in sort of you know a few months so this gives you an idea of the the downside or the dark side to wage subsidies they're just really expensive and we, we, you can't afford to keep doing this um, and so what you saw was the government saying we have to go back into lockdown I'm going we're going to compensate this uh for you know with a wage subsidy but you notice right at the end there they didn't there was that extra hey it's going to be another 4 days they didn't they didn't keep that wage subsidy going because I think we are literally running to the end of this that we're running out of of money in some respects or a willingness to spend that money in the same way so there is this I think natural tension or inflection point or just a point at which the government says we just can't afford to keep doing this
0: because of the, I mean, the there's the opportunity cost as well of what else we, what, what we might need to be doing with that money in the next year, year and a half, two years.
1: Yeah, what else could we be doing with this money? And what else, you know, what else what might we need to spend on? Um, all of these things are, are sort of political decisions that, that Labor's being forced with at the moment. And um, no doubt they're under a lot of pressure, um, you know, uh, all the time, we're balancing the health response and the economic response, and, and we're learning as we're going as well. So, you're seeing the government, you know, even like level two is not what level two was before. There's like level two point five, or so. We are learning as we're going, and, and we are transitioning. I think when you do have a, a, when you do need to go into full lockdown, wage subsidies are a, a very useful tool. You know, we we did see people being paid, and if they had been let go, we would have still have to have spent some of that money anyway on income relief through the benefit systems.
0: You talked before about, you know, you sort of said that the advantage of that is you kept people attached to firms. And I guess I just want you to sort of explain why that's an advantage. I mean, there may be something inherent about, you know, it's, it's, it's nice for someone to keep getting a wage and obviously people need to live, but why in terms of the economy do we want workers to stay attached to the firms that they're a part of?
1: If your firm is, is under normal circumstances viable and can make money, um, it's just a. It's if if because of a a health need you're shutting that firm down for a month, and then you're having to let all those people go, and then they're having to be rehired afterwards. Uh, this this all adds business costs. Letting someone go adds a business cost. Um, bringing them back into the the firm adds a business cost. So there is a you know there is a a reasonable economic argument for saying. If a firm is viable keeping a worker attached to a firm through a particular supply shock like we had uh, makes sense you know it l- can lower business costs it can be un can there's a whole lot of areas where you know be- even the fact of being laid off can make people uh sort of uh, mentally un- unhealthy you know you've got all that stress how am i going to meet my mortgage payments things like that which if if this crisis hadn't happened it wouldn't be an issue so the downside is if that firm is not viable going forward, what you're now doing is you're locking a firm and a worker into a situation which is just not is not going to be viable going forward. And so that, this is where the, the, the other sort of major downside to the wage subsidy comes in is if, if this firm is just not viable and going forward, that there's no real point keeping those workers attached to that firm. It would be probably better to say to these people hey let's find some other way of helping you but one that also refocuses you on finding
0: that next job it kind of sounds like wage subsidy done well is almost an investment um you know an investment with the expectation of a return to productivity um so that if a a firm can come out of lockdown and have all the same workers ready to do the job in the same way that they were doing the day before we went into lockdown that's a real win for productivity and can get the economy back on its feet straight away but if you are in a place where um, say, you know, the, the demand for your product or the demand for your services when you come out of lockdown just isn't there and there's nothing for your employees to do, then keeping all those employees technically employed in that job while the lockdown was happening wasn't actually that good of an investment.
1: You're absolutely right. What what we're trying to do is is help firms bounce back quickly and and minimize sort of the economic cost on on families in some respect. But if that firm is not viable for whatever reason, if you were, a, yeah, if you were in tourism and that firm is no longer viable, in some respects, what you have also done is locked workers into a, a mindset that says, "I'm, I'm going to be okay," when actually the writing's on the wall. And and the best thing probably would be to say, "Hey, we need to come up with another way to help you, it's one that enables you to transition into something new." And this is why sort of education funding education options is a fantastic way forward it's also why hiring subsidies are a good way forward and also the, the covid income relief payment actually is a way of signaling to you that your job is has gone that you know that actually what you need to do is move or, or find something else and so
0: you're getting that balance right is hard when it comes to hiring subsidies obviously um you know you looked at the literature uh, for your paper and looked at hiring subsidies and outlined how hiring subsidies can be used um in in a way that's actually effective after you released your paper, Labour came out with their policy. You know, are, are you a fan of those hiring subsidies? Have they done it well?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's always about uh, the fine detail. But in principle, what they're, what they're proposing is, I mean, in, in reality, we've had hiring subsidies. We've had hiring subsidies since the 90s. Uh, the, way, the shape and form of those hiring subsidies depends on political will. So, you know, in the early 2000s, there was a program that said, let's get long-term unemployed people um, into work. And they had this discretionary way of saying to an employer, hey, if you take this person on, we'll help with their wages. And that that, that worked really well. As, as the labour market, you know, recovered and we saw the unemployment rate drop, there was less of this focus on moving the long-term unemployed into work. And what you saw is we moved into sort of opening up Immigration is the, the big option here. So what the government's done right now is it's sort of moving back to that earlier model and saying, hey, actually we need to start refocusing back on getting people who are unemployed or at risk of long-term unemployment back into work. And they're using an existing policy. They're just playing with the regulations around who can get access to it and how much money we're willing to spend on it. So. In actual fact, it's not a revolutionary thing uh, that they're doing, um, but they are refocusing and and expanding the criteria by which people can get access to that subsidy. I don't know the specific details and how long that subsidy will last for, and I think actually it needs to be tailored to the individual person. So if you're looking at, at person A, you might say, hey, this person just needs three months. Look at person B, it might be saying, hey, actually to help this person, we need to to give them a good decent run at this, it might be a six month wage subsidy. And I think there is that flexibility for work and income to do this kind of thing. These responses really need to be tailored to the individual. And and one of the big takeaways from active labor market policies, which was the sort of the broad topic, is that uh, different people react in different ways, that everybody uh, needs a different different, um, intervention in some way, shape or form. And, And there's no point, you know, it's not a one size fits all, solution
0: here i always like the idea of a one of a um you know a tailored and more human way of looking at people and their needs in the situation but i mean isn't that awfully expensive how much can we tailor things i mean one of the one of the benefits of a one-size-fits-all policy is that it doesn't as it doesn't actually take that much to implement it
1: yeah i mean you are always balancing these costs and benefits off each other so what what we saw in the past was WINS or Work and Income New Zealand taking quite a proactive approach and calling an employer and saying, hey, if you're hiring, I can help you find a worker. And in fact, I can help you find a worker and we're going to subsidise their wages, you know. And what we saw there was it was a really interesting little uh, paper. It was two really good New Zealand researchers. They did some really good work. And, and what you saw was firms using this in an additive sense, so you saw larger firms who were going to employ seven or eight people, they'd take a ninth person on, and that ninth person would be the person that they're taking a risk on, and so they would use that, that extra position to hire someone off. Off the unemployment benefit and they would take a wage subsidy to do that and it, it appears that all the data suggests it worked really really well. Small employers however, small employers, what they saw there was that it was some evidence that an employer, a small employer was only hiring one person, they might take a subsidised worker over an unsubsidised worker. So you did see some substitution between someone with a wage subsidy and someone without. But I mean on balance it it, it, it looks like a good way forward. Is it more costly? Yes. I would say, yeah, it is. All of the literature says basically, if you want to minimize costs, focus on on the search side of things. So help workers find firms, and help, and help firms find workers. So help a worker with their CV. Uh, help a firm um, by saying, hey, if you come to us, we've got lots of people that you can can choose from. So that it's called the matching a matching function. It's and yeah, it's a way of of helping workers and firms find each other. They're, they're always relatively cheap. It's what WINS does quite well already. There may be some. There might. There might be more you could do there around how to make this more efficient or better. But you know, Winds is expanding um, centres all across the country in, in, in response to COVID.
0: And I guess you know, talking about matching uh, leads leads us on to another area um, of recommendation in your work, which is talking about um, the migration tap being uh, sort of unnaturally turned off by COVID. Um, that we have for years experienced uh, huge numbers of temporary migrants coming to New Zealand to fill roles in agriculture and heavy machinery operation and a whole bunch of stuff that's sort of you know firing the engine of New Zealand and all of a sudden employers including my brother who's a farm machinery operator down in uh, Canterbury. Um, he's just talking about the fact that they've got harvest coming up and normally they'd be having the same, you know, or, or quite a number of people coming into New Zealand for the season, um, who all know how to do the job. Uh, and now he's sort of going, who on earth is going to do all this work um, that is quite highly specialized? What's your recommendation for how we can kind of fill this need? And what what would you advise that people do? It
1: really is a rock and a hard place in some respects. There's a definite need, right? Like we have a whole lot of work that just needs to get done. And if we don't do that work, we're going to see harvests that aren't going to be picked, pruning that's not going to be done. If you don't do your pruning this year, that affects your harvest next year. So a lot of these jobs are actually quite essential. And yeah, the government's just said, I'm sorry, we're not going to, we just don't have room to let these people in. I, I think we need to break this down and say, well, what's an issue for now? and and how do we prepare ourselves for a different future so what this has exposed is is an over-reliance on short-term migration solutions and so what we need to do is say well how can we set ourselves up for both a win now and a win in the future and so if it was me i would be saying look yeah if you need people let's see how we can bring some people in yeah but this is it this is your last season where this is going to happen And so what are you also going to do alongside that? How can we invest in training and education to mean that next year we are not in this situation again? It's also a difficult one from from the perspective that even if someone could come, can they get insurance to cover their medical costs? Because, you know, if someone does get sick after arriving, it's really expensive. Firms can pay for quarantine costs, but who's going to pick up the bill if someone does actually get sick? And I know insurance companies, medical insurance companies are saying, look, you, you can't take a policy out now and expect to be covered for COVID-19. So you are expecting workers to come to New Zealand and to work here while somehow finding a way to cover that medical cost as well. So it's not quite as simple as saying just let private enterprise have quarantine facilities. You also have to, to work out the solution to the medical costs that might be associated here. And if you're coming here and, and you you you're know you're, you're going to earn $30,000 in three months doing harvesting stuff, you can chew through thirty thousand dollars in three days in ICU, so it, it might not even make economic sense for someone to come if they can't get medical insurance. And if you can't solve that problem, you know, then then that really does throw this whole system of short-term migration into a different light. So my my view would be find some way to find people, get people in, you know, classify them as essential workers to help with this harvest right here right now. Do that in such a way that New Zealand is not bearing the costs of the risks around medical stuff. Uh, I also think that we just have to say, look if it's going to take eight or nine months to train someone to become a harvester for next year then we need to start investing in people as much as we are saying we're going to invest in roads and bridges and things like that that actually there are people that we could say let's just let's just cover the costs of your training and help you into this job
0: what can the government do in terms of actually helping people to um, get from where they are now. This is a few weeks back now, but they were talking about the fact that 50,000 people in Auckland are going to be unemployed um, over the next year. And so obviously that's a big glut of Aucklanders um, without work. And then there's people in the regions crying out for people um, because the regions, you know, have seen um, population decrease over the last wee while.
1: I mean, there's a whole lot of things you could potentially do, but one, one thing that I point out is the there's a, a 3K to work wage subsidy well it's a it's a payment to help with with moving costs so if you're moving from one place point A to point B and it's going to cost you you know two and a half grand to do that uh, you've got a job you're unemployed at point A and you've got a job in point B but you know you just you can't get over that cost of relocation the, the government would already pay up to three thousand dollars to help you with that the, the The caveat being that if you're in Auckland you're not allowed to move outside of Auckland and get that payment so you couldn't move from the Auckland to the Waikato. Now we know that there's jobs in the Waikato, so if someone, my view, if someone is in Auckland and is saying, hey, I want to move to the Waikato, I've got this job offer, it's going to be fantastic, then I think the government should come to the party and say, look, we would have helped you to shift to Auckland, we're going to help you to shift out of Auckland as well. So that's one practical way which I think the government can help. Uh, we see that with Christchurch as well, if you have moved to Christchurch, the government will help you move from a small town to Christchurch for a job, the government won't help you move out out, out out of Christchurch for a job. And I just think we need to, to rethink that at the moment.
0: Yeah, I mean, the other major recommendation from your report back to work was around um, including training conditionalities in government contracts for these sort of large-scale infrastructure projects. Can you just talk us through a bit about what that is and, and why you recommended it?
1: Yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing the government saying it wants to spend, um, you know, around $15 billion. It's bringing forward a whole lot of infrastructure, $12 billion worth of infrastructure Um, And then there's sort of a $3 billion worth of shovel-ready projects and provincial growth fund stuff and a whole range of things. So this is a a huge amount of money. Um, What we see in the literature is that if you really want to get a long-term payoff from this infrastructure and shovel-ready project spend, you need to invest in people as much as your bridges and roads. So there shouldn't be a firm in New Zealand that says, hey, we're going to get this government contract to build this road, and what, what what we actually need, though, is we need to bring in 20 digger drivers from Australia. We should be saying, hey, if you're going to take this contract, you need to create 20 highly qualified digger drivers as part of the deal. So it's this this kind of quid pro quo where we say to business, hey, we really want you to build this road, we really want you to um, be successful, we're gonna help you with that by, you know, bringing forward these projects to give you a pipeline of work. At the same time we say, but, you know, you need to be training uh, New Zealanders as part of this process so that we shouldn't have any skill shortages in your industry because you've been training and we're gonna help you with that. And what you see is, it means that you don't create 20,000 jobs, you create 20,000 good jobs that have got a career path going forward. We don't really want to create 20,000 labourers. We would prefer to say, well, let's make 5,000 labourers and 5,000 heavy machinery operators, which in the off season can go down and do harvesting in Canterbury. Do you know what I mean? It's that sort of how do we create a pipeline of good jobs rather than just jobs? My view is we shouldn't have a single one of these projects go out for tender that doesn't say, as a condition of you getting this contract, you need to train X amount of people or spend this amount of money on training. I just think it makes um, good economic sense. It's a good way of getting bang for the buck. It's also a good way of setting us up for a win in the future.
0: When you're looking at big headline projects like like the the big infrastructure spends that have been promised by National and Labour, and even the the PGF, um, $3 billion fund that New Zealand First has brought in over the last three years of government. I mean, one of the big, I mean, I guess, you know, like uh, the government spending a whole bunch of money to try and, you know, sort of kickstart the economy and, and get some infrastructure that we've been crying out for for a long time underway. I mean, is... Is there any downside to the way these things are being brought forward or or being kind of uh funded i mean how should we be looking at these election promises
1: so the big tension here is do we do we do it alone by ourselves do we just say let's just have a ministry of works that that does this let's go back to the old ministry of works model and and just do this by ourselves or do we use um, do we do things in partnership with the private sector and there is sort of an ideological argument that goes on behind this what the what the literature basically says is the government shouldn't go it alone. If you look at the results across the board, you get better returns when the government partners with the private sector to deliver these things. There's always going to be issues. There's always going to be inefficiencies. Uh, you don't know what you don't know. Typically, if the government goes it alone, it makes more mistakes. There's big issues here around uh, lead times and lag times. So uh, the government can, can't just like click its fingers and and say we're going to have 20,000 jobs tomorrow because we've got all these roads well the provincial growth fund has shown us that without a shadow of the doubt that even if you've got money to spend by the time you contract that out you know you've spent a year and then by the time it gets up and running you've spent another year so often it's two to three years before we see significant employment you know the peak employment impacts of these programs so they're, they're not an instant fix these things aren't They're not, you know, it's not like you can just, you know, spend your credit card and get the goodies. And this is one where where planning a road takes time, you know, contracting out the work takes time, training up your workers takes time, sourcing all of the product takes time. So, yeah, there's multiple issues here. The, the, The key lesson, though, really is that the government working in partnership with the private sector just tends to have better results in the long term. I take the criticism that we've had around some of the roads in New Zealand, where it's been, you know, this this um, public-private partnership model that where the wheels have gone off, but you don't know the counterfactual you don't know what would have happened if it was the government doing it by itself. there might not have been transparency anyway and you might have ended up spending the same amount of money but you just wouldn't know it. There's all sorts of pluses and minuses to these models, but when looking at the literature it's just very clear if you want to have good employment outcomes uh, for New Zealand. Probably public-private partnerships are the way to go.
0: The big uh, current example is Transmission Gully and the enormous overruns that are going on there. And you'd know far more about that living in Wellington than I do. Um, but it does, I mean, it does look like a massive schmozzle And I guess, you know, when, when people are going, well, you know, who do, who do we trust to do this? Do we trust, you know, a government that's elected to serve the people? Or do we trust, you know, a sort of consortium of private companies that have a profit motive and don't really have the good of New Zealanders in mind? You know, why would we trust the consortium?
1: Part of it is also that this was the first time I think we've used, so I mean, we've used public-private partnerships to build schools for a long time. And the thing about a school is, you kind of know how much it's going to cost. We've done it before. We've got history. We know that this is roughly the ballpark we're talking about. We've never used one of these models before to make such a big infrastructure spend on a road. And I think when you looked at the the tenders that went out for tender, and and the prices that were brought back, new that they they chose they didn't choose the most expensive model, but probably the most expensive model from what I hear was around the costings as it's turning out to be. So. You know, part of it is you don't know what you don't know. Part of it is we haven't done this before. We need to learn lessons as we go along. And this really is probably one of the biggest takeaways from all of this is the role of evaluation. Whenever you undertake one of these projects, you need to start saying to yourself, "How do we evaluate this to to find out if it's actually good or bad, and what can we learn for next time?" And so I think the way the public should really look at transmission gully is. Yes, this looks like a bit of a schmuzzle, but what are we learning? And part of what we're learning is potentially that the least cost contract isn't the one you should go for. We're also learning that when you're talking about innovation and innovation and in road services and the way we're building things, that needs to be factored into the the, the risks around price. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a whole lot of lessons to be learned. I don't think this is, you know, transmission gully should be seen as the death knell of public private partnerships, but I do think it is, a, it is a the, the one thing that we should really take away from this is evaluation, that we need to evaluate what went wrong and what we need to do better next time.
0: Across the board, I mean, looking at the, um, the spending that the government is doing, do we have a sense of, of, of how it should be evaluated and, and kind of I guess, you know, evaluation always factors in a, a counterfactual, right, of of what could have happened or what might be. Do you get a sense of, of whether or not that kind of evaluation structure is being put in place for the kinds of spends that we are looking at over the next couple of years?
1: I think there's an enormous amount of pressure right now for the government to deliver jobs. And the downside of that is that you will probably see evaluation dropping off the radar. And that, that's a real missed opportunity. Even if you only do half of the projects, evaluate half of them. The problem is evaluation costs money, and it it's not how, it, how do you say this? It's not sexy, right? It's not it's not like it's like pipes. Evaluate, you know. So you say evaluation, everybody goes, oh dear, more boffins in Wellington earning money to tell us what we already know. Well, there is actually there is actually value here because sometimes things just go wrong. Sometimes you invest some money, and it's just not a good investment, and you need to know that. The only way to know that early is through evaluation what evaluation says is this is not achieving the goals we set for it it's one year into a three-year project you're immediately saying well can we can we change can we change this so that we get better bang for buck oftentimes there is a way to make a small difference and then you start to achieve your goals and that's fantastic you're maximizing the return on that money sometimes though the evaluation says look we just we just underestimated this entirely we we just got it wrong and we need to stop doing it and at that point, after a year, you can pull out. If you don't collect that information, you just spend three years worth of money and and at the end of it, you're worse off. It can save you money in the long run and can actually get you better outcomes. So in some respects, it's about saying, what else could we be doing with this money? If we're not actually achieving our goals here, we should pull out now. It's it's much better to do that, to spend a little bit of money, even 20% of your total cost, if you can spend 20% of your total cost. And it can save you 60% later on then that's a a far better outcome for New Zealand. So I would say there's a real risk here that the political pressure is just to get shovel ready projects out the door If we're not evaluating those projects, that will be a huge loss to New Zealand in some respects.
0: I guess there's a a, a political incentive as well to avoid evaluation because even if you were going to save money in the long term, actually getting one year down the road of a project that you'd announced and then saying, oh, hang on a minute, this project was wrong from the start and we shouldn't have gone down that road. I mean, it's politically um, almost impossible to make that kind of admission in public, isn't it?
1: And so we need to have a little bit of grace here in some respects. But, but equally, I think, and I, I don't want to overstate that because I think most of the time what you see is is the evaluation picks up that with a few minor tweaks, you get far better outcomes. And so what you see is you see the program adjusting midstream, and, and that's actually the, the huge benefit you get here you know, 80, 80% of your projects probably require that as they go along. What I do think actually is that the better spend here is, is not to say, well, oh, wasn't that embarrassing? Your project was a complete failure. The, the real gains here is, oh, your project's not doing as well as it could be. How do we make that better? What lessons do we need to learn now to just shift that and make it what it could be? And so that's where the real benefit of evaluation comes is, is not in the sort of the 5% of projects that should never have happened. It's in the
0: 80% of projects that could be made better. All right, well, that about does us um, in our conversation with our resident, Boffin, down in Wellington. Thanks for joining us for this month's podcast. To see more of Maxim's research, analysis, and commentary, you can head to our website, maxim.org.nz. There, you can sign up for our monthly forum email that will highlight the best of our recent work. And of course, you can also subscribe to this podcast on whatever podcast platform you normally listen to. From all of us here on the Maxim Institute team, Matewa, goodbye for now.